Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. So this morning as a church, we want to acknowledge the wide definition of motherhood and mothering. So I'm going to I believe that the Lord wants to minister healing um, to all of us. And so instead of having you stand, I'm asking that you would put your hand on your heart and then engage with the Lord as I read some of these things and let the Holy Spirit bring um, these things either to you that need to be healed or to someone in your life that you know that needs healing. And so um, so stay engaged and allow the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do this morning. So to those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. And to those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, We appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage or failed adoptions or runaways, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who have experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who have lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married, and mothering your own children, we mourn with you that life has not turned out the way that, it, that you have longed for it to be. What, but we bless you right now in that role as a single mom. We bless you knowing that Jesus can be that comforter, that husband, that father, that friend, that very person that you need during this time. To those who are step-parents, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envision lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream has not been, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve with you, but we also rejoice. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, 
we anticipate with you. So this day that celebrates motherhood, remember that that role comes in all sizes and shapes. And we walk with you. We bless you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart. And we have real warriors in our midst. And we remember you right now. So Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I ask that you come and you minister to each heart. You know the hurts. You know the pains. But also, Holy Spirit, you know the joy. And so I ask that you bring a healing that is beyond our imagination, that you bring a joy that is beyond our imagination right now. And we thank you that Jesus provided for all of this. We thank you that we can trust you, that we know that you are a father that is faithful and that you're relentless and you never walk away from us and you never give up on us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll just release the kids right now. We're going to um, be learning about angels today and how powerful and awesome they are and how today in today's society we kind of downplay angels. So just be praying for us and asking the Lord to reveal how amazing angels are to the kids. Amen. Thank God for our kids and their, their teachers. <clears throat> Hallelujah. Let's pray together before we get started. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You're welcome to come. Take charge, Lord. Have your way here. Do what you want to do. We want to follow you. We want to experience your life. So we submit ourselves to you. The Spirit of God, we ask you for the revelation of your Spirit. We ask you to teach us this morning that these would be more than words that hopefully sound good, but that they would be words that change our lives. We just commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, I, I don't often remember my dreams. And when I do, they're usually not spiritually significant. Um, some of them are kind of funny. But uh, it was Friday a week ago, I had gone to bed meditating on the teaching I'm giving this morning, and I, I woke up <clears throat> at the end of the dream, I'll read the dream and what I wrote down about the dream to you, and I think you'll see why I woke up so early. In the dream, I was in a car with a young girl perhaps around seven years old, who was sitting in the driver's seat. While I was in the passenger seat, with my head down, 
looking at something under the dash. I didn't seem to be aware of it, but the engine was running, the car was in gear, and moving slowly. We were on a long, semi-circular driveway just off a road. So in other words, we just the vehicle's parked like right off the road, headed toward the, the U part, and we were just kind of slowly moving along that. At least that's what I remembered when I had been aware of where we were. Um, so we were off the road and headed away from the road. While I was looking under the dash, the young girl was steering the car along the driveway and was quite pleased with herself that she was driving. I finally looked up and realized we were moving and were nearly back to the road where there was heavy traffic. The girl couldn't reach the brake pedal and seemed to be completely unaware that we were in any imminent danger from the traffic we were just about to move into. I was able to get my foot on the brake and stop the car only a few feet from the road where we would have been hit by another vehicle. So I prayed about that. What does that mean? Well, here's the symbolism that I got. The car represents the American culture. The young girl represents the people who are, if you will, driving our culture. I represent those who should be, dri should be driving the car, but who have been distracted and are too busy with other things to stop the car and steer it in the right direction. The semicircular driveway represents a U-turn moving away from biblical values and morality toward lawlessness. The traffic represents the destructive forces that will hit American culture if we don't stop moving in the wrong direction. We already see many destructive forces bring harmful changes in our, in our culture, but it will get far worse if they're not stopped. Why was a young, inexperienced girl behind the driver's wheel? I'm not sure about that. I think I have an answer, but I, I'll get into that later, perhaps. She thought everything was going just fine and was very pleased with her ability to steer the car, but was also completely unaware of the danger we were facing. She was also completely unable to stop the car. Now you might think, well, how did the car get started and into gear? Well, most Americans are unaware of how our country started and what has propelled us from our humble beginnings to become the greatest nation on earth. The break represents the moral restraint exercised by those who understand God's law and his authority. Now, how can we switch drivers? That question came to me as I prayed about the dream, but I soon realized that it was the wrong question. We need to understand what drives each person to act as they do. 
You see, if a person's acting in a way that conflicts with how we believe they should act, it's because they have a different set of values and a different worldview. George Barna and David Barton wrote a book in 2014 called U-Turn, which was subtitled Restoring America to the Strength of Its Roots. George Barna has done extensive polling <clears throat> and a lot of the statistics that are in the book are the result of his work. But they wrote, values are the guiding principles that combine with our core beliefs to affect our attitudes, opinions, choices, and behavior. Values identify what we maintain to be right and desirable in life, and they therefore influence our goals as well. Just as the behavior of every individual is an outgrowth of the person's values, the same is true for nations. America is the product of the cumulative values of its people. It always has been and always will be. There is no way around it. As a person, you do what you believe. As a nation, our behavioral patterns represent what we as a nation value and believe. During the past 25 years, the United States has been redefining itself through a dramatic shift in its values. Understanding that shift is important. Whether you choose to embrace the shift or to redirect it. Those guys do a really good job of expressing what may be somewhat difficult concepts to grasp in language that makes sense to me at least. So, as followers of Jesus Christ, our values grow out of our relationship with God and our understanding of the Bible. The dramatic shift in American values, I believe, is closely linked to a rapidly growing ignorance of the Bible. I believe we have become the most biblically illiterate generation since our country was established. I'll go down a rabbit trail here for just a minute. I can't remember the exact numbers. I don't have them in front of me. But I heard David Barton talking about the, the percentage of people who believe that it is not necessary to believe in Jesus Christ in order to enter heaven. And he's talking about people who call themselves Christians, who identify as such. And I believe the number was as high as 80%. Wait a minute, what happened to what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. What does Acts 4.12 say? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Is that clear? Is that not... <laughs> I mean, how do you misunderstand that? So either we have never read those verses, 
have never had those verses taught to us, or there's a strong spiritual delusion operating. Now, America's ignorance of the Bible has led many people to develop a worldview that is contrary to what is taught in the Bible. Barton and Barna define a worldview this way. They say a worldview is simply a mental filter that helps us to organize information about the world and our preferences in ways that help us respond to life's circumstances so that our behavior is consistent with what we believe to be true, right, and proper. Is that good? So, very simply, a worldview is how you view the world, okay? What lens do you view the world through? If your lenses are blue, everything's gonna be blue. If your lenses are green, everything's going to be green. If they're dark, like some of the people I know who are so depressing to be around, everything's gonna be dark. If they're rose-colored glasses, as we remember, everything's gonna be just rosy, okay? But how do you view the world? Now, followers of Jesus should have a worldview that is rooted in the teachings of the Bible. Would you agree with that? Okay. I'm not sure where else we'd get a biblical worldview, right? But today, just 4%, according to Barna and Barton again, just 4% of American adults and only 10% of born-again Christians possess a biblical worldview. Let that sink in. Does that... 4% of the American population and only 10% of people who call themselves born-again Christians possess a biblical worldview. Perhaps that's because only half of Protestant pastors possess a biblical worldview. Again, I think we are grossly ignorant That's why the Word of God tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. It should not surprise us then that today, three quarters of Americans contend that religion is losing influence. Now what I've shared so far this morning is not good news. Would you agree with that? But I don't want to create hopelessness, so we need to consider what God says about how we should respond. First of all, I want to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Paul wrote, what then shall we say to these things? And I would ask, what shall, then shall we say to the things I've just been reading? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril as, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now I want to dwell on this for just a moment. For your sake, we are killed all day long. Now I don't know about you, but I don't personally know anybody who has been killed for their faith. So it's somewhat easy for me to distance myself from what's happening in other parts of the world. Where our fellow brothers and sisters are being killed. <clears throat> For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul, I believe, knew people who were being martyred. In fact, he stood there watching one being martyred and approving of his death, right, Stephen? Okay. He knew people who were being martyred. And he says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The thought that came to me is that we are victors, not victims. Even in the face of this kind of opposition, we are victors. We win. Even if our bodies are killed, Jesus is going to win the battle. He is going to take over. But along with that, another thought came. If we concede defeat, we have lost. Have you seen games that were called before they began? <laughs> okay. We concede defeat. You, you, you guys, you won. If we take that attitude, it's over. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, says, Fight the good fight of faith. Don't roll over and play dead. Fight the good fight of faith. Now, how do we do that? Well, I believe Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 gives us a little guidance. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? 
It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, I want you to think with me about this verse for a few minutes. First of all, what gives us flavor? If we are the salt of the earth, what gives us flavor? Well, I think we need to look at the context. Jesus had just given the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. The Beatitudes describe the kind of people the Lord wants us to be. They describe the character he wants to produce in us. That last song we sang, Come be the fire inside of me, the flame upon my heart, until you and I are one. I guarantee you, if that's happening in our lives, there's flavor in our lives. So as we live in a relationship with him and abide in his word, our values and worldview become more and more like his. We learn to value the things he values and see the world as he sees it. We develop a biblical worldview. But how do we lose our flavor? Our character, our values, and our worldview will become less than he desires if we don't abide in him and allow his word to abide in us. You see, it's not a stagnant thing. Let's take the, the physical body, for example. You can work out diligently for months at a time, but you stop for a month, you're not going to go back to running as fast as you did or lifting as much as you did. You just can't. It's not a matter of, I've, I've arrived at this point, I'm always going to be here. And spiritually, it's the same way. We need to continue to develop that intimacy with the Lord. When our character, values, and worldview are affected in that way, if we don't abide in him and we don't allow his word to abide in us, we begin to be influenced more by the world around us than by the Lord and the Bible. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I like J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of that. He said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. But let God remold your minds from within. So there's a work of God within us that has to take place if we're going to have flavor. Now, how does salt flavor food? First, it has to taste different than the food you're putting it on 
or it won't make any difference. It won't add any different flavor. So we must be different than the culture around us or we will have no effect. Is that logical? All right, secondly, the salt must get out of the salt shaker and into the food. If it just sits on the salt shaker on the table, so what? It must interact with the food to flavor it. The salt shaker, of course, is a picture of the church. So the point is, we must get out of our churches and interact with people who don't know the Lord if we're going to influence them. We cannot function as salt if we are isolated from people and from our culture. Jesus said that if we lost our flavor, we would be useless. That's my paraphrase. What he actually said is, good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be useless. Okay? So, you know, I would observe that to the degree the church in America has lost its flavor, those who have biblical values and a biblical worldview have been thrown out of positions of influence in our culture. And they're now being trampled underfoot. One example is a Georgia physician. Well, I'm not sure if he's a physician. He was hired by the state of Georgia to lead in the Department of Health down there. But they discovered that he had, as a lay minister, taught several things that were not acceptable to them. So they withdrew their job offer based on his, for one thing, teaching about marriage from a biblical perspective rather than what they wanted to hear. Now, Jesus asked another question that I think is important for us to understand. He said, if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? First of all, there's hope if we've lost our flavor. It's not all over. See, if we desire to regain our flavor, we must go back to what gave us the flavor in the beginning. We need to grow in our relationships with the Lord and study his word to restore our godly character and our biblical values and worldview. When we are restored, we will have flavor once again, and we need to bring that flavor into our culture. Now, much of our interaction with our culture occurs on a personal basis from one individual to another or in small groups. The Apostle Paul gave us 
some insight into how that works in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. There he wrote, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Now Paul used the words fragrance or aroma rather than flavor, but I believe he was writing about the same concept. See, as God leads us into a victorious life in the Spirit, the life of God within us becomes evident to those around us. In fact, I'd say if we're salty enough, our lives may produce a thirst for what God has given us. If we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and our life has that flavor, people may well want what we have to offer. But that requires a quality of spiritual life that goes beyond what the nominal Christian who just comes to church once a week and never opens their Bible during the week and never has any fellowship with anybody else, never bothers to pray more than a couple minutes a day. You know, if that's all you want out of your spiritual existence, I won't call it life, you don't have much to offer. Anyway, now another function of salt is to prevent decomposition or corruption. So based upon what Jesus said, I believe we're called to prevent the decomposition or corruption of our culture by being people of integrity and godly character who live God's way. We need to know what God's moral standards of right and wrong are and live by them. Again, quoting from U-Turn, Barton and Barna say, only 34% of adults believe that there is any absolute moral truth. When pressed as to where such truth can be found, we discover that only one out of 10 American adults believe there is absolute moral truth and that it is found in the Bible. Rather shocking, isn't it? But again, we can't throw up our hands in despair throw in the towel, and quit. Because if we do, we're going to lose. <laughs> so the next step, after we've learned the standards of morality ourselves, is to train our children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, says, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them, let me go back a bit, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. It starts with us. Then it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. 
So we have a responsibility as parents or grandparents to teach our children and grandchildren. By the way, quick aside here, where did we get the idea that government is responsible, responsible rather for the education and development of our children? Do you know there are countries in which the attitude is, you're mine. You're a ward of the state. There's one country, I can't remember which one it was, I was just hearing this the other day. There's one country in which every child when they're born is assigned a government representative, I'm not sure what they call them, to monitor their welfare. This says you, parents, grandparents, shall educate your children. Now, I think there's something as, as equally as important of knowing what those standards are. Think about this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24, just a few verses later, says, The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good. You've heard that disgusting phrase, celestial killjoy ascribed to our Father, right? That's what some people think about God. When we know him to be a loving Heavenly Father who wants us to enjoy life and to have joy, in fact, he is the only source of true joy, right? He gives us his word, his law, his standards of morality, his principles of life, for our good. It's kind of like this. If we look at the Bible as the owner's manual, you know you're owned by God, right? He bought you with a price, you're not your own. Okay? Not to mention he made you to begin with. So he's the owner. And in the owner's manual, for example, of your vehicle. It tells you what kind of fuel to use in your car or your truck. Well, if your car is designed for gas, but you put in diesel, what's it gonna do to your vehicle? <laughs> Nothing good. <laughs> you probably have a blown engine, and I don't know what else. I don't wanna go there. So the point is, if we do things God's way, it's going to work out better. Why? Because the one who made us and who knows us intimately knows best and wants what's best for us. Okay, so we talked about knowing and living by the standards ourselves and passing those standards on to our families. But publicly supporting God's standards of morality is becoming increasingly unpopular. One example is the case of Judge Ruth Neely. She is a faithful and active member of our Savior Lutheran Church in Pinedale, Wyoming. 
She has served as the municipal judge there for more than 21 years. In that position, she hears all cases arising under the ordinances of Pinedale. Judge Neely has also served as a part-time circuit court magistrate for approximately 14 years. In that capacity, she has the authority to, among other things, administer oaths, issue subpoenas, issue search and arrest warrants, conduct bond hearings, and solemnize marriages. In late 2014, Judge Neely was contacted by a reporter from the Civilette Examiner. The reporter asked Judge Neely whether she was excited to perform same-sex marriage ceremonies now that they had become legal. Judge Neely replied that because of her religious beliefs, she would not be able to do same-sex marriages and that she had not been asked to perform one. In December 2014, an article appeared in the Sublet Examiner quoting these statements by Judge Neely. In March 2015, the Wyoming Commission on Judicial Conduct and Ethics filed a complaint against her alleging judicial misconduct under the Wyoming Code of Judicial Conduct and seeking her removal from both judicial positions even though she's not permitted to perform marriages in her position as a municipal judge. More specifically, the commission alleged that by merely communicating her religious beliefs about marriage <coughs> and her inability to solemnize same-sex marriages, Judge Neely failed to follow the law and manifested bias <coughs> excuse me, or prejudice based on sexual orientation. On December 31st, 2015, <coughs> the commission urged or issued a recommendation to the Wyoming Supreme Court seeking Judge Neely's removal from her positions as municipal judge and part-time circuit court magistrate. There's a flyer in the back, I thought I had one up here, with Judge Neely's picture on it. There we go. <clears throat> Which I encourage you to pick up. There's a website on it, and if you go to that website, you can sign a petition to support her and learn more about the case. Now let's go back to Matthew 5.13. I'd like to make another observation on what Jesus said in Matthew 5.13. It seems clear to me that the Lord wants us to be influential. I've already talked a little bit about how we can be influential in our personal interactions with people. Now I would like to address how we can influence our entire culture. So let's begin by considering Matthew 6.10, part of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think with me for a moment. What areas of life does that apply to? The church? 
our personal lives, our families. Is that it? All? Everything? You mean God wants his kingdom to come to the earth? He wants his glory to be revealed throughout the earth? Amen. How does the Lord show us what his will is? I believe it's primarily through the Bible. So let me ask another question. Does the Bible only speak to spiritual topics? It's a good book for meditation, right? To learn spiritual principles and moral principles, and it gives preachers something to preach out of, right? I have here a book I'm going to love called The Founder's Bible. <clears throat> David Barton is uh, a major contributor, the major contributor to it. But in The Founder's Bible, you're going to find applications of Scripture to every area of life. As he goes through the Scripture, he'll give commentary on different verses. Let me give you an example. Um, many scientists today think the Bible has nothing to say about science. This is my comment, but and in fact, many college science professors today are atheists and openly antagonistic to people of faith. I think it's something like 38% of science professors in colleges are atheists. <laughs> so they're somewhat uh, hostile to the Christian faith. Matthew Murray is a man who was uh, born in 1806, lived in 1873. He was a ship captain for a while and then had an injury that prevented him from going back to the sea. But one time while he was sick in bed, he had family members reading the scriptures to him. And they came to Psalm 8, verse 8. And one of the phrases in that verse is, paths of the seas. Murray was so deeply impressed by that that he just later discovered there were pathways where current streams move much faster than the water around it, which allowed ships following those paths to greatly reduce their sailing time. Later on, he made a similar discovery from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, "...the wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north." The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. Maury investigated and also discovered pathways in the air, what are now known as jet streams. So clearly the Bible speaks to science. Now we all know that the Bible also speaks of many other things such as marriage, parenting, personal relationships, Finances, health. You may or may not be very much aware of this, but I'd, I'd like to direct your attention to Romans chapter 13 for just a few minutes. The first four verses. <clears throat> Within these verses, we learn what the purpose of government is as far as God is concerned. 
It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Let me just comment on that. When I taught last month, I said that we must disobey human authorities when they direct us to violate what God has told us to do. But understand, when we do that, we're going to suffer the consequences. Verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So verses 3 and 4 tell us that government authorities should not be a terror to good works, but to evil. And that we should not be afraid of government if we're doing good works. But when government becomes a terror to good works, it is stepping outside of its God-given authority. And it is at that point that we must disobey government. To further illustrate that the Bible speaks a great deal about government, John Locke was the third most cited political authority in the founding era. In 1869, he wrote two, his two treatises of government, which Thomas Jefferson and the other founders specifically relied upon when drafting the Declaration of Independence. Locke referenced the Bible 1,000 349 times in the first treatise and 157 times in the second. That should make it quite obvious that the Bible has a lot to say about government. In fact, Wayne Grudem wrote a book called Politics According to the Bible, just a little book, 600 plus pages. <clears throat> In that book, he presents what the Bible has to say about abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, marriage, divorce, the family, economics, national defense, foreign policy, and many other topics. In the second chapter, Grudem explains his belief that God desires significant Christian influence on government. Small rabbit trail here. There are those who say that Christians want to have a theocracy. No. Historically, every theocracy that existed eventually led to totalitarianism. People can't seem to submit to the true and living God and allow him to be king, they want to be take over as king. So in the beginning of this book, Grudem talks about five different views of, of government and what 
what they are. In fact, maybe I'll just take a moment to read that. It's just the titles of those uh, sections. Five wrong views about Christians and government. Government should compel religion. No, that's the state church. Government should exclude religion. No, that's America today. All government is evil and demonic. How stupid can you get? Do evangelism, not politics. Yeah, we should be doing a lot of evangelism. That should be our major focus. But not to do any politics, I think, is irresponsible. Do politics, not evangelism? Oh, man, we've really missed the point if we get there. Government is not our savior. Jesus Christ is. I think I said this, but in the second chapter, Gritham explains his belief that God desires significant Christian influence on government. He writes that without Christian influence, governments will have no clear moral compass. Now, we've looked briefly at a few of the topics the Bible speaks to. And it is my conviction that the Bible speaks to every area of life. Now, follow me here. Going back to Matthew 5.13 for just a minute. When we apply the Bible to every area of life, we can be influential, as I believe Jesus told us he wants us to be. What happens if we fail to apply the Bible to every area of life? We become irrelevant in every area we fail to speak to. And we deny the influence of God on that area. That's the problem with Christians buying into the lie that politics is dirty business and Christians should have no business in government. Well, let me ask you a question. If we are good and moral people who have the character of God, but we step aside from any interaction with our government, by definition, what's left? Godlessness, anarchy, immorality, is that what we want? Now lastly, I want to look at the Great Commission for a moment. Because in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus tells us something here that applies to us being influential. When Jesus came and spoke to them, he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Get that. All Authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, verse 18 tells us that there is no authority higher than the Lord Jesus. None. Many people in our culture don't want to hear that because they want to be their own final authority, but it doesn't change the reality. 
See, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, say, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. At this point in history, the kingdom of God is within us. And God rules his people in their hearts as we voluntarily and gladly submit to him. That's how the kingdom of God comes to us, is our submission to the king. 1 Timothy 6.15 and Revelation 17.14 both tell us that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So his authority is supreme. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now I would ask you a question. Are we teaching the nations to observe, or another word for observe is do, to do all the things that he has commanded us to do? When we step away from interaction with different segments of our culture, we're not, are we? And we, by doing so, choose to make ourselves irrelevant and powerless. But if we are, we will be influential. And we can bring the blessing of God to the the people that we interact with, to the segments of our culture that we interact with. God wants godly people in positions of authority, positions of influence. He wants you and me to step into those positions. So I challenge you, don't be irrelevant. (laughs) Be influential. Study the Word of God. Let God show you more and more and more of how He sees the world what his values are. God rewards obedience. The fruits of our obedience can mean very positive things, not only for ourselves, but for people we know and for the culture around us. Disobedience does not bear good fruit. Without going down that path too far, I just want to say, I'm committed to being obedient. I want to follow God. 
and I want to share what he shows me with those who will listen. And if we do that, one person at a time, I believe God can change the culture of this city. He can change the culture of this state. And he can change the culture of this nation. But the time for us to do so is now. If we continue down the path we're going, there may come a time when it will be too late. God's a big God. He can do things far greater than I can imagine. But let's be obedient. Let's cooperate with what God wants. And let's let God have his way in us, in our families, and in our culture. I think that's all I have for today. Um, if anybody would like prayer, uh, especially the ladies, over the things that Kim was ministering about earlier, um, but any of the guys, too, if you have other issues that you need prayer for, um, we have a healing God, amen? Um, so whether it's a emotional wound or a physical healing you need or whatever it is, there are people here who love you and want to pray for you. So just, we have a prayer room over here. Step in there and we'll pray for you.